Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. I'm your host, PJ Thum. So this week, we have a very special episode for you on elections in Singapore. And to talk about this, we have three incredibly brilliant and talented guests from very different backgrounds. First of all, we have Kokila Anamalai, a community organizer. Welcome, Koki. Hi, thank you. So, Koki, um, what what communities are you organized? Uh, are you you know do you organize? Or are you part of? Uh, a lot of my work has been with women, low income communities, LGBT groups, um, and minority groups in general. Oh, fantastic! Um, also with us, uh, Niam Shutong, who is vice president of Singapore's uh, human rights organization Marua. Welcome, Shutong. Hi, thanks for having me here. Now, you're an engineer, right? Yes, correct. How does an engineer get involved with human rights? Ah, long story. Actually, I was also a civil servant before at one time in my life. So back in 2006, I was actually an election official for the 2006 election. Then later, after I left the civil service, I was a polling agent and counting agent in the 2011 and 2015 elections. I think because I've been exposed to the elections process when, when I was a civil servant, I think I kept an interest in it. And that's also, in fact... Why I joined Marwa. Last but not least, Gan Tengwei, who is a dentist, and you were also election agent for Jeanette Chong Aruldos in 2011 and 2015. Hello. So, uh, I guess a similar question for you. How does a dentist uh, end up getting involved with uh, you know, politics and becoming an election agent for Jeanette? Well, uh, Jeanette is a good friend of mine. I got to know her back in 2009 when uh, I joined politics. So, um, uh, just before 2000, 2011, uh, she, she mentioned that she, she has the intention of uh, contesting. So, no, I'm, I was very happy to support her in whatever way I could back then. Yeah. Okay, well, welcome everyone. So let's start uh, talking uh, with, about the, the broader context of elections before we get into the elections themselves. What is the sort of political culture of Singapore? Well, you know, I, I think that um, if you look at voter behavior in Singapore and um, the discourse surrounding elections, it tends to be um, less about what candidates stand for, um, you know, whether they reflect our, um, the voters' values or represent um, the issues that we care about, um, and more about this, you know, a particular notion of competence stewardship, right, and uh, town council management, and... And, and also this notion of non-corruption. So those tend to be some of the things that, that affect um, voter behavior rather than, you know, the, there isn't really as much of a discourse around um, um, foreign policy issues or um, human rights issues or, or any of those things or, or, or um, the vision for Singapore going forward that a particular party represents or what their manifesto um, says about those things, but rather... Yeah, on issues of administration and, and a certain sense of competence in being good town council administrators. And so, like, you know, a lot of the um, discussion could be around, like, you know, whether you're going to get a new walkway, right, sheltered walkway built or lift up grades. And, and that's the kind of micro level of um, issues that the discourse focuses on, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's been a deliberate strategy of the Pupils Action Party over the last 30, 40 years to really focus on these very practical, granular issues because um, on the one hand, you can't uh, monopolize a rights-based 
uh, discussion, right? A rights-based debate. So right. they want to move it onto ground in which they can monopolize. Yeah. And if you talk solely about bread and butter issues, quote-unquote bread and butter issues, like you know, building of walkways, um, only the government that's in power controls the power of the purse and they're, only, mm. they're, only, they're the only ones who can deliver on it. Right. So by limiting this discourse to this very narrow area, uh, effectively, the PAP are forcing um, the, you know, all politicians to play on a playing field in which they control, in which it, it's severely tilted in their favour. That's right. And yeah. if you look at even like the accusations or um, the ways in which the, the PAP has sought to discredit some opposition parties, uh, it, it has also um, been linked to like improper town council management, right? Like in the case of the... Um, um, Alginet. Alginet, yeah. case with the, the workers' parties management of the town council. So I think that the centrality of um, town council management and, and, this, and this kind of like almost... The baby taking this moral high ground, saying that you know, these are the things that regular people care about, regular Singaporeans care about bread and butter issues, and then kind of this false dichotomy of like ideological issues um, uh, and, and bread and butter issues, when actually they're so deeply linked, right? And then there's also this like, kind of cycle of using their the, the kind of street cred that comes from, oh, you know, from walking the ground, we know this. Right. From our MPS sessions, we know that this, these are the things that Singaporeans really care about yes. and not these other things. Yes, yes. But, you know, as, as, as academics say, the plural of anecdote is not data, right? And we've seen, especially very recently, uh, our next Prime Minister, Heng Sui Kiet, saying, you know, just making a broad generalization based on anecdotes. Oh, Singapore, over a certain older generation of Singaporeans don't want a non-Chinese prime minister with, with no proof, right? right. And I, th you know, I think we see that a lot from, from politicians, of course, not just in Singapore, but it is not the basis of good governance to then make these sweeping statements mm -hmm. and, and claim that, oh, you know, because we walk the ground and talk to people, therefore we know better. Well, I mean, who are these people? What is statistics, you know, that yeah. back you up? Where's your research? And this comes back to another problem about Singapore that, um, you know, I think academics always complain about. There's no transparency, that we don't, you know, all the information is secret. And we simply don't know, which means, again, that the government, the PAP, has a monopoly on information, which, uh, you know, underpins their monopoly of power. Yes, and any claim that you made would immediately be shut down as fake news. Yes, now we have the new <laughs> fake news bill. Yes, and in yes. fact, I mean, not just, um, yeah, if you talk about one reason why politics tends to revolve on municipal issues is that a lot of bigger issues have actually been excised completely from political discussion because uh, even if a lot of academics will find it very difficult to challenge the government orthodoxy on any foreign policy issue or economic policy issue, you can think of even former government insiders like Kishore Mabubani, Donolo, have, or to a lesser extent Tomiko as well, have been sort of uh, gotten the wrist slapped for daring to question government policy. So if even insiders who actually presumably have the best knowledge of the true situation are uh, being discouraged from speaking out publicly, what more a politician or, uh, or even an average person on the street to dare to question government policy? So, so we were talking about the, the role of MPs just now, but based on the experience I had um, uh, when we were doing outreach uh, 
we had a chance to talk to uh, the residents, the voters, and 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 you realize that actually, um, quite a quite a fair bit of of the voters were quite confused about the actual roles of MPs. So like, like just now we we talk about um uh, town council all the upgrading work. It seems like a lot of them. Will think that you know sure sure we know we know that there there will be CPF uh, issues HDB issues um, a lot of other national issues but when come come to uh, choosing voting for the MP I think a lot of people still look at the local issues more more so than the national issues I think that 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 is something that that um, um, in terms of political. Uh, maturity we still quite lack in this aspect yeah okay so coming back to the question of elections then they take place in this context where uh, you know based on on what we're discussing um, there is a sort of uh, depoliticization of politics to focus on um, bread and butter issues Uh, there is a sort of um, turning of MPs from politicians and legislators on national issues to administrators, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the fact that Heng Swee Kiet is going to be our next prime minister, he, he's, he's a very good administrator, but he's not a politician and quite clearly is not, you know, has, has no, none of the talent for sort of leadership and drive and vision and inspiration that you need from a politician. What he is is a really, really good permanent secretary, civil servant. And that's the kind of person that uh, is being put forward as our next uh, prime minister, right? It's this kind of logical consequence of what we're seeing here in that if you argue that politics is merely administration, then clearly the leader should be the best administrator, not the best politician. Or a visionary or anything like that, right? And then this also ties into the whole, um, I think think a, a certain elitism and classism and the selection of candidates because it's tied to competence of particular forms and not to vision and not to passion and not to um, all these other kinds of um, things that, that typically we might look for in politicians, right? So it, is, it depends on whether you went to the elite schools and you know, which Ivy League college you graduated from and mm. how much money you can make in the private sector as you know, um, mm. Um, Go Chok Tong recently made comments yeah. about that that became really controversial So, and, and I think that that role of being administrator is tied to then all these competencies that are looked for that, that are based on these elitist and classist um, assumptions so this is the context in which our elections take place right? and so uh, before we get to the, the specifics of the electoral process uh, I just want to ask you Thung Wei about um, what can you know, non-government MPs, non-PAP government MPs or non-elected MPs do outside of the formal electoral period when it comes to promoting their party and you know, just walking the ground, meeting people? Is it purely just the sort of what we see in the news, walk, you know, uh, walk the ground or uh, what are the limitations, I guess, placed on opposition MPs? Okay, um, the truth, very little that uh, we can do. Let, let me explain. For non-elected, um, well, say for example, um, I'm speaking um, about Mountbatten, okay? Um, of course, the, our candidate wasn't elected and um, 
after the elections, when we've decided that we uh, wanted to do some outreach, you know, we explored the option of maybe um, using some of the facilities within the constituency, like uh, uh, the basketball courts, void deck, um, etc. You realize that it's almost impossible to have an approval as long as um, you've made known that you represent the opposition party and you want to carry out activities, even if it's just very um, um, non-political activities for the residents, it's never ever approved. So we are, in the end, we are down to doing um, the usual door-to-door um, on weekends, visit the hawker centre, coffee shops to talk to the residents, which um, in actual fact, it's, I mean, after so many years, you realise that that alone will not be very effective. Um, in terms of engaging with the, the residents. Uh, what opportunities do you have to put your viewpoints out about your different plans or visions for the future or you know, to, to, to sort of uh, break out of these limitations that are placed? Uh, because I think you, you, under our very strict public assembly, mm-hmm. public order mm-hmm. laws, you can't hold a lot of public events. Mm-hmm rallies outside the campaign period you can't you basically can't be a politician mm. in the in the normal sense of the word so is there anything beyond social media obviously mm. where, you know that you that opposition mps or opposition candidates can do well um if if most of us who are following um, social media are close enough um, you, you, you might have noticed um, uh, this fellow called Jose Raymond. Um, yeah. He's active in Potong Pase. Yeah. Um, he's very active almost on a day-to-day basis. He's down there. It's walking the ground, talking to people every single day. Okay? And we talk about visibility. You know, people need to know who you are. So come election, you know, um, it's not just about, oh, now then you turn up you know what's what what happens to you you know before 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 elections so that's provided every one of us has the time to commit on a daily basis to do your daily grassroots uh, work like that but to be practical unfortunately a lot of us have day jobs so um even up to today as i can see the main bulk of the opposition outreach uh, works is still on door-to-door visits and giving um, giving out newspapers or selling newspapers. Hardly any breakthrough since 2015 until now. Newspapers, um, mm. it's so it's legal to sell those, uh, but I think under newspaper printing That's presses, right, that yes. you can't actually have them distributed by a, a national distributor. You just no. have to sell yes. them. Yes. And then um, you, I mean, I guess under Vandalism Act, you can't put up flyers and notices without. Do you need permission, or how does that? You can put up, you can print flyers and put we, them in we, mailboxes. Yes, yes, we can. We can actually print flyers, but as you know, today uh, a lot of the uh, HDB mailboxes they, they, they are locked. So yeah. even um, to prevent uh, anti-spamming, uh, you know, so so you can't really drop flyers. Mm. Um, so what what happened is that most of the time, as uh, we go door to door, we hand deliver the, the flyer or the brochure to, 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 to the, uh, the residents. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's, a li- it's a bit um, tricky here because during non-election period, uh, when we do door to door, 
um, when we talk to the residents, um, most people are, are polite, uh, courteous, but they, of course, they will question us, why are you here? You know, it's not even election, you know. And when, when we tell them that, yeah, we are here to listen to you, uh, help you in any way we can, the fact is we know there's very, very little that we can do when we are not elected. We can't even write um, a letter on their behalf and hope that it will be, it will be uh, there will be any reply, you know. So, so at best we can we can offer some help in our own capacity. Um, but, but the thing is, when it come to elections, then again some residents will question us, where are you? Where were you? Before, before elections, you know, so, so there's this very tricky, like, we don't want to uh, overdo it, but at the same time, if you don't do anything, you know, you're, there's no visibility at all. So, so a lot of times it's all about visibility. You need people to see you doing the groundwork. Yep. So that's, that's always a, the, the, the challenge that, that opposition parties face. Well, I think like what, what is also troubling about this is that you're forced to engage with your constituents mm. only as individuals mm. or as athletes, mm, right? right? You don't have any platform where you can engage with them as a group, mm. like through a town hall or a dialogue session mm. or, you know, so there's, there's no way to, because of our, our assembly mm. laws and, and, the, and, the, and the monopolization of shared spaces, mm. there's just no mm. way that you can talk to your residents mm. as a group. And I mm. think that is such an important aspect in, in, in political consciousness, right? And people can, like seeing the legitimacy of a candidate because they've gathered together to engage. Because what do I know if you're just talking to me at mm. my door? Mm. Like there's no context for you as a candidate to see you as a political mm. being. I think it, it's so limited to mm. um, the rally period, right? Mm. And, and that's it. And I think that's why historically political parties, right, were organized on the basis of um, an existing interest group mm -hmm. with existing, you know, built on existing uh, mechanisms through which they could help that interest group. So the PAP, for example, of course, is, is a trade unionist party, right. Yeah. right? It was built on the power of the Middle Road group of unions in the 50s. The Workers' Party, likewise, trade unionist party. Then you look at um, you know other political parties like uh, the what you know Singapore Amno I forget their their current name, uh, but of course those are uh, meant to help a specific um, ethnic linguistic religious community, and they already had uh, mechanisms organizations associations uh, that you know they could use to help that community. And help resolve problems and and uh, you know bring up issues to the to the government, so that's that's the kind of pattern that you see um, elsewhere on which politics is based, right? It's about yeah. you know uh, using mechanisms and um, on the basis of existing associations to fight for specific issues or specific ideals. But in Singapore, it sounds like what we're very much forced again to. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about uh, the the sort of narrowing, the depoliticization of politics. Yeah. It's also sort of like the individualization yes. of politics, yeah. where you you you're not able to build an actual sort of party base that then links to other interest mm. groups like trade unions, yeah. but instead you're forced to just. I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lack yes, of yeah. identity yeah. among yeah. the, the, the I, mean, I would even argue that government policy is actually break 
has been to prevent the formation of any communities independent of government, independent mm. of the government, right? Like they obviously have taken over PA, mm. so that even the elected MP is not the no, advisor. Not taken over. PA was founded oh, sorry, at the beginning <laughs> with the prime minister as the chairman. Yes, correct, right? yep, there was yes. never any independence, despite yep. what they pretend. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, and even I mean, generally speaking, people because of our restrictive assembly laws and the, the restrictive. Uh, laws and registering of societies even though other interest groups never really get off the ground because everyone's afraid of oh how do I form a society you know do I have made reports mm, uh, yes. so I, th- I think that, that uh, that's one of the weaknesses of, of Singapore as a nation which has been a result of, of the PAP's policies and also because resources are so centralized right in mm, terms of right. who controls mm. access to resources so if you were a civil society group that um, showed any interest in politics um, you, you would immediately be gazetted and cut off from all these resources. Right. So then your your opportunities to earn political capital um, are so delimited. So you spend, like, let's say you spend several years walking the ground as an MP, right? But then we come to the, you know, the first, like, sort of major institutional barrier, uh, gerrymandering or the redrawing uh-huh. of boundaries. Right. And... I guess, you know, as an opposite MP, you spend like four or five years walking the ground. You've got to pray that your constituency isn't suddenly redrawn or absorbed into yes. a GRC or, right. you know, broken up or something, right? Now, Sri mm-hmm. you have some yeah. experience with this, right? Um, no, no real experience. I said, as an observer, member of the public. Right. Uh, but my only observation would be that the, compared to, as you say, the Randall Constitution came out, there was a very comprehensive electoral commission report detailing why exactly uh, government created certain number of, con- of town constituencies, rural constituencies, and they talked about communities of interest that the constituent one of the, of the criteria of forming constituency was to create a community of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today, and that, but that was back in the 1950s when they had, long, they had like a, a very long comprehensive report on that. Today, when the Electoral Boundary Review Committee reports, it's basically nothing there. Mm-hmm. It just says, this shall be the this shall be the constituencies, and usually the practice in the last 20, 20, 30 years has been that the government will release the electoral boundary review committee re- report, and then parliament gets dissolved less than two months later. In some cases, it has even been dissolved one day after the electoral boundary review committee was report was published. Wow! So it's effectively there's no unlike in many other countries where there's requirements that the electoral boundaries are put up for public notice, you know, say maybe three months, six months in advance, and people are given an opportunity to, co- to suggest changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have none of those safeguards in Singapore. So in that sense, yeah, we, 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 have, we may have an electoral system which is free, but uh, it's definitely not fair. Yeah, and I, think, I don't think it would be a uh, surprise to anyone to learn when exactly this system came into place because until the 80s, the electoral boundaries were passed through parliament, right? They were tabled and there was a vote publicly in parliament where people could speak uh, and um, address the, the issue of the, the boundaries. But after the election of our first opposition MP uh, since 1968, JBJ in 81, and then Cham Si Tong in 84, the system uh, rather abruptly changed and the elections uh, department was, was mm-hmm. placed under the Prime Minister's office, I believe. And, and, uh, and that was the time where all the secrecy around the redrawing of boundaries um, you know, and, and this, uh, this whole very 
abrupt uh, process was put in place. But instead of having and designing elections to reflect the will of the people and to create constituencies of shared interests as they did in the 50s, um, which collectively elect a person to represent them in the national parliament, what seems to be the case is that we see an election system that is designed to produce and maximize positive outcomes for the PAP um, with little concern for what that means on the ground for the, the people on the ground, but also for a lot of other parts of government putting in a lot of hard work um, you know, to try and, and make this country better. Which I guess brings us to, you know, we, we're talking about boundaries and the other controversial mechanism, apart from the gerrymandering every election, of course, is the GRCs, mm. right? And there's a, a huge racial component there. Mm. Um, yeah, so the GRC system was introduced um, and justified on the basis of minority representation, right? That, that it was a way to ensure that there are minority candidates that have voted into parliament and the assumption was that people will vote along racial lines and that this was the only way to protect um, the representation of minorities in parliament but we've but we see that actually if you compare um, pre-GRC assemblies and the ones post that system being introduced actually in pre-GRC assemblies there were um, an equal number or higher number even of minority candidates mm. uh, of minority MPs in parliament right and so um it, it really then makes one question what the, the role of the GRC has been in, in terms of um, creating more representation for minority groups. And it also seems really strange that it is, it is um, you know, prescribed which um, community a particular a candidate, minority candidate needs to come from in different GRCs. And that seems entirely arbitrary too, right? But it, it, and I, think, I think if you just take a step back and look at the things happening in parallel, whether it's the, the GRC system or the reserved presidential election or um, um, comments by um, Heng Sui Ket around um, Singaporeans not being ready for a non-Chinese prime minister, there is an entrenchment of this um, expectation that um, Singaporeans vote along ethnic lines, even though there is so much data and um, um, evidence to the contrary, right? whether it's, it's survey data or election results when in 1981 Singaporeans voted for JBJ or um, more recently in 2016 um, the Bukit Batok SMC they voted really play into power against a, a very popular opposition candidate Chu Sun Chuan right so there is seems um, again quite a self-serving system the GRC is, is a way to um, you know shoe in sort of untested candidates um, and to um, create barriers to entry for smaller parties that may not be able to field such a large team rather than really about minority representation at all. Okay. So th and so the, the ethnic integration policy also affects elections, right? Well, you know, the, because of the quota, I think what, what it ensures is that every constituency is a Chinese majority constituency. And because of that, this disincentivizes candidates from you know, representing minority interests at all, because there's no need to. As long as you appeal to uh, your Chinese voters, you're guaranteed to be voted into 
So you don't have yeah. to look into minority so interests. So just, just for our non-Singaporean listeners, can you just summarize what the ethnic integration policy is? Uh, it, it, was, it was introduced to, in, in the PAP's words, disrupt uh, the, the possibility of formation of ethnic enclaves. So um, through HDB's um, mechanisms ensures that there is uh, the distribution of different ethnicities in any given neighborhood reflects their distribution in the population at large. Right, so it's 75% Chinese majority in Singapore, that means in every constituency there will be 75% Chinese, or, or even actually in every housing estate, um, and in, in, in every block too. So. But this only refers to, uh, applies to HDB, right? Yeah. Not private. Although estates. 85% of Singaporeans are, yeah. are in HDB, yes, yes. so yeah. it's... Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I, I think what, what goes further to cement that sort of... Um, um, domination is is not just in uh, th- you know through design of course you, you have a, a minority of, of Malays and Indians in every single constituency and so there it is harder for their interests to get represented by candidates but even the discourse surrounding um, elections and and the um, advocating for minority groups interests um, and using elections or parliament as a platform to do this is something that the PAP has systematically discredited, right, and, and called divisive. So, um, um, yeah, so, so it seems in Singapore that they've made it illegitimate for opposition parties to, to talk about issues of race or religion or any other minority interests because that's, that is disavowed as inherently um, damaging to our you know, very carefully put together racial and religious harmony um, that, that wouldn't exist if not for the, the PAP safeguarding it. So that, that narrative has been used to discredit uh, you know, workers' party MPs and, and others who have, uh, I think, in, in good faith, tried to bring up issues of concern to um, ethnic minorities. Like, for example, the um, workers' party MP Faisal brought up the Tudong issue in parliament and was you know, shot down by Minister Masagos in, in very... Um, and, and they really took him to task for it, right? To, saying that um, the Workers' Party is being divisive and that they're trying to earn communal votes. Um, and, and Prime Minister uh, Lee also reinforced this in 2017 when he said that there, um, you know, these are issues to be discussed behind closed doors. These are not election issues and cannot be used to earn communal votes. And, and this means that they have, they've taken away this discourse from something that can be democratically discussed, right? Whether through elections or otherwise in open forums because they've, they've circumscribed it as something that can only be discussed in closed door meetings. But nevertheless, um, you know, PAP politicians continue to make comments about race and religion that hurt the sentiments of minority groups regularly, right? Whether right. it's about um, um, Muslims becoming more distant and the lack of integration um, or, you know, about um, growing religious extremism, um, so you know, and, and it seems then that only the PAP has the legitimacy to make these um, comments about race and religion, but then also position themselves as the only guardians of racial and religious harmony. And it is because of all these threats and all these vulnerabilities that you need to vote the PAP into power, because um, and, and Minister Masago said this also in Parliament that it is not through the level-headedness of Singaporeans that we have the harmony. We have today. It is because of the fastidious efforts of the PAP. So it sounds like there's actually there's there's two big things there. One is hypocrisy, right? Only the PAP can talk about race, 
you know, the non-PAP politicians are not allowed to talk about race, and uh, you know that's extremely unfair. Um, but it's also it sounds like if if after sixty years in power, we you know we still have all these huge racial issues. I mean. Isn't it the fault of the government which has been in power for 60 years, especially a government with the kind of control that the PAP has, you know, where it can determine where we live and influence, you know, who we marry, when we marry, how many children we have, where they go to school, which can even dictate to us what our race is for political purposes. If a government with so much power has not been able to make a single dent in uh, race relations in 60 years I mean really whose fault is it mm. okay so to come back to the GRCs then because if we start talking about race it's going to be a whole different <laughs> you know podcast mm. right uh, so for non-Singaporean listeners uh, the, the, the GRCs are a system in which uh, a single constituency elects um, three or four or five or do we still have six member GRCs yes yeah. Okay. Yeah. So three, four, five, or six uh, members instead of single uh, MP. So I suppose it. But then one criticism has been that it's harder for opposition parties mm-hmm. to find, you know, four, five, or six yes. people. Yep. And has that been your you? I mean, Jeanette ran in the SM in a single mm-hmm. member constituency. Mm-hmm. But has that been what's been your experience from the inside? Well, be, based on my experience, um, GRC usually will be the uh, tougher. Uh, in, in terms of you know um, the decision to which con- constituency to to contest in, and usually of course is uh, are those areas that we've been uh, working more on the ground, and of course with the change of boundary, then you have to deal with uh, potentially having to face with uh, three cornered fight. So you have to talk to the um, negotiate with the other opposition parties, you know, and then finally to um, the stage where you select your own candidates for for GRC. And it's tough because um, sometimes, like if you look at a six-man GRC, sometimes you're just uh, unable to uh, fuse six candidates, six good and credible candidates, you know, and uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, at, the end, at the end of the day, you're scrambling for for people who, who are keen to come on board. Mm-hmm. So that's why the last last uh, G you see like uh, the, the talks o- about um, different opposition parties wanting to come together to uh, to contest in, in, in the GRC, for example. But, but they have raised the minimum number of SMCs from 9 to 11 the last uh, uh, Increased, but still, and also still insignificant. the size of GRCs? Less six-man GRC, I, yeah. I, I, I yeah. suppose, yeah. So those, I think, mm. are some very minor tweaks that they've done to try and appease those sorts of criticisms. But still insignificant. Yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. I mean, just the logistics of campaigning on GRC is vast. I mean, mm. I live in Marine Parade, and that's literally from sea, from the shores of Marine Parade all the way mm. into Serangoon, almost Hokang. And yeah, for, for under non-Singaporeans, um, Serangoon and Haukang are, are, are pretty much on the other side of the island for, from where Marine Parade is. So you're talking about a constituency that kind of, you know, by the name Marine Parade starts at the sea, but then goes all the way across to the other side, almost to the other side of the island, and um, is this very incredibly strangely shaped 
uh, constituency. And of course, the same with Tanjung Paga, which is uh, also uh, originally uh, a coastal constituency, right? Mm-hmm. With right. a lot of docks, dock workers stretching all the way inland um, and, you know, quite far into Bukit Timah, which was a very, in the past, a very sort of uh, rural um, and uh, inland constituency on the west of side of the island where Stanjung Paga was on the sort of southeast side. So you have these crazily constructed constituencies which encompass vast areas which have uh, and these areas have very little to do with each other and of course they elect well, five, six people. Yeah. Of course uh, you know, we, we talk about the opposition finding it difficult to find you know, four, five or six competent people but that's not unique to the opposition. The PAP also finds also finds it difficult to find four, five, or six, you know, competent people to run in their GRCs. But there's a crucial difference because they can, uh, you know, drop in their what they call their anchor ministers, right? Mm. Like one yeah. really talented. Mm. It's like I always say: can can anyone name the people who run alongside Taman? Does anyone even care? Because <laughs> <laughs> right? you, you know, you live in Jurong, you're voting for Taman. Who do, they could run four, five. How's it? There's, is it a five or six? And you could just remember. keep expanding that constituency, and people yeah. would vote for Thurman. Yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. a brilliant strategy. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I mean, again, if non-Singaporean listeners are confused about why we we seem constantly seem a bit confused about certain, you know, the number of certain seats or whatever, it's because it keeps changing, and it's very hard to keep track of. Right? It's not a settled system. And every election, the constituencies change, the boundaries change, the number of seats change, the rules change, right? So Tengui, we were just talking about um, different parties combining together to mm. contest uh, and you know GRC, but uh, that's kind of also been discouraged by rules, uh, new rules that discourage coalitions, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. in fact, for the 2015 election, uh, again, this... The police suddenly uh, came up with a rule that uh, candidates from one party were not allowed to speak at rallies for another for another party, and that's clearly and, that, and that's ridiculous, right? Because if I'm an individual, I'm a Singapore citizen. Why can't I speak to support anybody's candidacy, right? Mm. And yet they came out. The police came up with a rule that said if you are a party leader in one party, you cannot speak at a, at a rally for another candidate from a different party, mm. and th- there's actually no legal basis for this. There's nowhere. But the police did it by administrative fiat because they made it a condition of issuing a permit for the rally. So, and mm. it's, if you think about it, it's really ludicrous because um, as PJ informed us, Singapore's first government was actually a coalition between Labour Front, Alliance, <coughs> and maybe one other party. Yeah. And Malaysia, our next door neighbour, has been run by a coalition from day one. And right. Pakatan and Barazan are both coalitions. And yet, by this administrative action, uh, the government seems to be trying to discourage even the possibility of opposition parties coming together to form a coalition. And I think the the the, the most important point uh, is the hypocrisy of it because when the PAP was an opposition party, they campaigned with the Singapore Alliance, uh-huh. you know, um, and other opposition parties against the government, and had the leaders of Singapore AMNO, for example, uh, including Tunku Abdul yeah. Rahman, mm-hmm. speak at their rallies back in the 1950s. Right. Right, so when they were in opposition, they were very happy to have all these other 
uh, you know, MPs uh, or, or sorry, uh, politicians from different parties speak on their platform. And quite famously, at the PAP founding, you had uh, Tunku and um, Tan Siu Sin. Yeah, uh, no, his uh, Tan Ching Bok. Oh, uh, sorry, not Tan Ching. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tan Ching Lok. Tan Ching Lok. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, so so it, there's there's all this hypocrisy, right? Today, if a if a foreign politician came and you know sat on stage at uh, a Singapore political party's event, the PAP would talk about oh foreign intervention and inviting foreigners to our domestic politics and blah 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 and and you know completely forget that they did that themselves when they were an opposition party. But that's yeah. why they know it's powerful and they have to stop it. <laughs> oh my God, Pedro. <laughs> okay, so uh, moving on, right? So we, we, well, we've been talking for a while and about all the problems with our electoral system and we're only at the drawing of boundaries. So um, we, we have the, the boundaries drawn, right? And between... Uh, two months, but usually a couple of weeks, maybe even overnight, then parliament is dissolved. And then uh, you have, what, about seven days between the dissolution of parliament and nomination day? Mm. Uh, yes, about around there. Seven days, yeah, exactly seven days. So, Tengwe, coming back to you, like, you're, you're uh, you know, someone who's, uh, who wants to run for parliament as an opposition, you know, a non-PAP candidate, um, how much time do you have to prepare? And at what point do you feel confident that, okay, an election's coming and I can start, you know, spending money to uh, print flyers and things like that? Okay, so, um, so let's, let's talk about 2011 uh, when, when this, uh, the electoral boundary was announced. We were, we were lucky because uh, it was announced 50 over days before nomination day. So that gave us a, bit, a little bit more reaction time. Um, Mountbatten SMC was a newly carved out uh, SMC. It was new to us as well. So um, even with the that fifty over days uh, um, of uh, walking the ground, we, we found it really tough to to cover every every aspect, every every household in in, in Mountbatten itself. So uh, can you imagine if you are um, your your constituency has been, uh, you know, part of it has been uh, carved out, and then uh, another part of, you know, another constituency has been added to yours. How much work that you need, additional work that you need to cover, just before the elections. So that that I think that that is the um, the challenge, the difficulty that a lot of the uh, opposition candidates, uh, party members, had to uh, are faced with uh, during that period of time. Of course, you know. The, the, the next thing we, we, we talk about is that um, once uh, uh, um, before the nomination day um, you would have to gather you know organize your, your volunteers uh, uh, to come together and, and start to plan the activities for the for the um, hosting period um, nine days or so of hosting period before the, the polling yeah I think the important point to make is that um, if you want to have a fair election, the elections commission should be independent of the government of the day, Correct. right? Uh, regardless of the Singapore context. Again, there's a, you know, the theme we keep coming back to is what an election should be if it's going to be fair 
and reflect the will of the people and the judgment of the people mm-hmm. versus how elections are actually designed in Singapore, which, you know, it's, it's uh, quite clearly to maximize positive outcomes for the PAP. And that's, and that's the difference. Okay, so, so what is it like then uh, between um, the dissolution of parliament and, and nomination day? Is it like a big rush or have you had things lined up already? So, so prior, prior to that, uh, we would have had a, a rough idea when the election was going to be called, like whether it's this year or next year, you know. So some of the stuff like uh, candidates' posters uh, would have been um, in the soft copy form. So all getting ready to be printed out. So one of the challenges would be that uh, you know we we needed to have all the materials, uh, manifestos, the, the flyers, the posters uh, that you see on 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 the streets, you no, know, all ready in the right right uh, um, resolution format, and then be printed out on time. So um, not every printing company in Singapore is so um, ready to um, you know print all these materials for opposition parties but of course we, we were lucky because one of our members uh, volunteers uh, happened to own a printing company so so we didn't have this issue even then um, it was a mad rush because everything you know when it was announced you know we didn't have a lot of time you no know, and and especially when some of the materials needed to be amended so we just made it in time in terms of printing all these materials yeah is it really expensive like is the and all the um, money is just from donations? Partially from donation, um, I can only speak on behalf of um, the smaller parties, uh, especially when uh, back in two thousand fifteen. So the party itself couldn't um, support um, the candidates financially very much. So everything is very much on the candidates uh, uh, from from the candidates' own pocket. Okay. Of course, the, um, the, 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 the deposit that, that the candidate had to come up with uh, to contest in the election um, and also the printing cost and also even cost to purchase merchandise or, or make the merchandise, uh, even, though, even though we know that some of these are going, uh, we're going to um, get, hopefully get some profit out of the selling of this uh, merchandise during a release. But the money to put... Um, get them has to be come up with the um, uh, from the candidates first so so financially speaking um, if if you don't have money it's almost impossible to contest as an uh, opposition candidate in Singapore Sorry, for context do you remember how much Jeanette spent for her SMC campaigns um, actually I, I can't really remember it's it's definitely in the region of five, five figure mm. yeah out of her own pocket. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so what happened is that, say for example, the merchandise that uh, was sold during party rallies, right? Um, of course, uh, the whatever profit, uh, the, the proceeds actually were, were divided equally among all the candidates. So even, even uh, the cost of um, engaging contractors to set up the stages for, for the rallies, uh, most of the time the money had to be come up from, um, from the candidates' pocket. And, and you were First. also saying that like contractors are not, many contractors are not willing. Oh, yes, yes, precisely. Because, um, well, a lot of, just like printing companies, a lot of contractors were not too keen to, you know, set up stages for um, rallies for the opposition parties. So we had to, you know, right from the start, you know, uh, talk to 
uh, people who who could help, and right. and and really really made sure that they they would not change their mind last minute. So we were again we were yeah. quite quite fortunate that you know a contractor was willing to you know uh, assist us in setting up all the stages for all our rallies mm. back in two thousand fifteen. I think it, I mean that's just so remarkable and shocking because I mean it's not just the culture of fear that it mm. that it indicates right around um, being seen at all to be working with um, opposition parties even if it's for purely business mm. interests but also like the extent of like alienation and insecurity that an that a candidate an opposition candidate or party has to experience is just. Yeah, the, the fear. Yeah, you're right. The fear is genuinely there. We could see the fear, you know, like from um, business owners, uh, even among volunteers. You know, people who who came forward. You know, there were also among uh, some of the volunteers who didn't want to be seen, didn't uh, would rather stay anonymous. You know, so we have to, uh, as as an election agent, I had to decide. You know, what are the volunteers who uh, we who will be helping us, assisting us behind the scene, you know, for example, doing translation work or uh, vetting through some of the speeches, you know. Uh, and so, so you see that among the opposition supporters, there, there are still quite a number of people who are, who, who are afraid to be seen, to mm. be supporting the opposition. So, so, so that's the state of affairs, you know, in terms of the, the climate of fear is really there. Is there a lot of paperwork? What, what kind of papers do you need um, to file? Well, some forms that we need to file, for example, the list of the, again, the list of the volunteers. Um, you have to provide um, um, these uh, uh, to the election departments, the, the phone names, the NRC numbers, you know. So, and, and precisely because of that, some people would rather not, um, you know, volunteer. What was the logic for names well, and they, IC numbers of the, volunteers. The, 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 reason, the reason I can gather will pro- probably be that they only allow Singaporeans to be volunteers. So that's uh-huh. like a list for them to check, you know, just... I think the <laughs> list is, uh, you must be a Singapore citizen, you cannot be a secret society member, hmm. undischarged, hmm. bankrupt. Not, and not serving NS. Yeah. When you're serving NS, you're not supposed to uh, to be involved okay, in any political right. oh, uh, but, election campaigning work. But that will be under SAF and police force own rules. Uh. Yes. It's not elections. What we're saying, in the elections, right, there's another specific clause that primary and secondary school students are not permitted to be election workers. Right. Yes. And yes, I'm yes, sure yes. PJ can yeah. hazard a guess as to why that yeah. happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, for, for those of you who don't know Singapore history, of course, the PAP was very heavily reliant on uh, Chinese secondary school students in the 50s as their election workers. Uh, because uh, Chinese language education was a major issue politically back then with the British colonial government seeking to shut it down because they felt that Chinese education would create people disloyal to Singapore and more importantly disloyal to the British who didn't think like the British, who saw the world very differently and uh, you know, jeopardized British influence over Singapore even after independence. Uh, you know, as an avenue of subversion, blah, 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 blah. So um, Chinese students were very much, uh, very passionate about supporting parties who uh, would protect the right of the Chinese community to have their own, uh, to be educated in their own language. Uh, Of course, this is more complicated in the 50s. Because of the war, many Chinese school students were 
uh, a lot older, yes. right? Yeah. They they weren't necessarily teenagers, um, and of course back then, you didn't have to just keep on going through school, um, because school wasn't properly government funded. It was very common for students to drop out of school, work for a year or two, save enough money, or their families would you know, stabilize their financial situations, then they go back to school. So you had secondary school students in their 20s. So it was a very different situation. But in a nutshell, that's why we, you know, why the PAP passed that law, because uh, by the 80s, they had turned against Chinese education themselves and were seeking to shut it down and, um, you know, close down Chinese, well, all non-English language education in Singapore so that itself is still a major issue in Singapore, our lack of choice of what language to be educated in. So although the, the one ironies of that is that today, actually, primary and secondary school students cannot be national workers, but ITE, Polytechnic, and of course, university are not covered by that. So in principle, uh, if you're a poly student, IT student, you can still go volunteer for the coming election. <laughs> right. So any poly, ITE, or university students listening, if you want to... <laughs> play a part in your country's politics, um, as is your right and responsibility as citizens, you should definitely go ahead and take part and volunteer for a, a party. Any party, it doesn't matter. But but in, in general, I, I would actually encourage people to sign up as election uh, assistants, polling agents, counting agents. I think because there is generally a sense of, the, I, I feel that people treat voting and politics in general as taboo in Singapore. Because partly because for many years we didn't do it because there were walkovers for so many decades that I think people actually forgot to vote. That's why until recently, you had a lot of grown men and women who said, oh, you know, I've never voted in my life. It's because you know, there were so many walkovers. And because of that, and because government has tried to depoliticize uh, society, many people, I think, became view politics as something dirty, something taboo. Mm. But that's clearly an unhealthy situation for Singapore. So I think uh, I actually encourage people to go help the uh, go volunteer for any candidate. If you're an RC member, you can go volunteer for a PAP too. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the main thing is people, more people do need to know about the mechanics of election to demystify the election process, to remove fears about things like ballot traceability or mm-hmm. you know, all these other things. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think the more people get involved in it and see it from the inside, the more people will accept the normalization of political activity as part of a citizen's right and duty. I think that that is so important, right? Because you're talking about the taboo of being involved in anything remotely political. And one of the things that's like as important as as rallies during the campaigning period is the coverage of rallies, right? That it's reported widely in the media what different parties' manifestos are, what their speeches are about. And, you know, up till I think the 2000. 11 election, there, there wasn't meaningful coverage of opposition parties' um, rallies until like um, the online citizens started to do that more rigorously. And you know, I've had friends who were turned down jobs um, because when their prospective employers Googled their name, they found that they had covered election rallies for the online citizen. Right? So the taboo is so strong mm. to, that, that I think for... Um, citizens to fear being involved in any political activity is is real, right? Because the consequences are real. People are denied jobs for that kind of involvement. So I think the, the call is not just to citizens to get involved, but to employers and others mm-hmm. to, to see this as normal and, and not to um, be prejudiced against people who are involved in any political activity. 
and, and, and actually covering, like, covering rallies is not a political activity, right? It's just journalism. Yeah. And even that is seen as, it's like, you know, as long as it's like within any proximity of it, it's tainted by this, the dirtiness of politics. So um, coming to the uh, campaign period then, uh, wait, just, just to clarify, how mm. long on nomination day do mm. you have to nominate? Your, is it the, the whole day? No? No, no. It's just uh, a couple of hours. I, like, uh, they have a deadline. It's one hour. So by, by one what hour? Time, by what Between time? That, 11, uh, yeah. I can't Between remember 11 exactly a.m. and 12 noon. How long? But, but there's a time that they open for nomination and then they close. And then, of course... Um, one hour. Yeah. It, it, your candidate, election agent, and all the centers, the centers are people who... Who are voters who live in the that constituents uh see who nominate you as a candidate, whether right. it's from PAP or opposition. Do you remember how many nominators and assenters you need? Um you need one nominator, if I remember correctly, it's five or six assenters for right. SMC. GRC, okay. of course, you need more. Okay. Yeah. And and these assenters have to be present as well throughout right. the whole um, nomination process. Once it's closed. Um, you know, the officers will be checking through all the forms, make sure that everything is spotless, everything is correct, then no disqualification, then um, they will announce the, the candidacy and, and that's, that's it. And then that's officially the time that the election campaign starts. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, of course, in the, in the 60s and 70s, one common tactic of the PAP was to conveniently uh, detain the candidate or one of their or their nominator or one of their centers for questioning uh, on nomination day itself, mm-hmm. thereby preventing them um, from signing it and then release them the mm-hmm. after the nomination period is over, mm-hmm. you know, with with uh, profound apologies <laughs> for the inconvenience caused, and, you know. Um, but uh, I I don't think those sort of shenanigans happen anymore. But still, only an hour to nominate sounds incredibly well. I can't exactly <laughs> remember whether it's one hour or more. Okay, it, but it, but it, that's it's one hour. Yeah, Eleven a.m. Hour. to twelve noon. Uh, but but definitely, uh, we had enough time. Okay, um, you know the 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 fear, the fear um actually was that uh, whether all the assenters would turn up. You know, there's always this fear that they will they will back up last minute. So. Right. The strategy was always to have more than uh, sufficient centers, uh, a few on standby. Okay, it's <laughs> just, just, yeah, just, it, it is kind of sad, but it's, it's actually necessary it's just to make sure that we go past that nomination stage, you know, and become eligible to be, to contest, you know, right. the elections. So we had to be safe and we usually would have a few on standby. Right. Yeah, and can, could be activated anytime that we needed them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and then the election deposit, you ha- do you have to gather up all that money and turn it in beforehand? Yes, um, usually it's in the form of um, some kind of uh, kind of banker's guarantee or something like right. that. Yeah, and, and, and together with all the forms, uh, someone then, then with all these forms properly filled up and then you submit and then um, they, will ch- they will check through all the forms. Right. Yeah, that's, that's how they do it, yeah. Oof, okay. Mm. Okay. So uh, the the elections officials check through the forms, mm-hmm. then they announce the candidates. Then campaigning starts at that point or the next day. Well, technically speaking, uh, it should be the following day. The following but day, right. I'm sure everybody immediately immediately after that started their, their yeah. Campaign. I mean, yeah. I remember on nomination day in 2015, mm. there were you know uh, the candidates got up to a microphone and made speeches mm. straight away. 
yes. and their supporters in the yes, yes. you know that's that's yeah. usually the case after nomination when when you know with um with the candidates successfully nominated um they will take them to give a speech mm-hmm. they are allowed to do that uh given uh well, there's always a time limit but all the candidates would have prepared a speech uh, to kick start the campaign Right. So you see, like uh, two camps, you know the the PAP supporters and the, the opposite supporters there, you know, uh, you know, chanting and uh, you know, raising the flags there. It's quite quite a quite an experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So we get to the campaign, and I think one of the uh, features of our contemporary uh, elections is that they're all snap elections. Yes. Right. Gone are the days like in the fifties where we had fifty over days for an election. Now every election pretty much is what, nine days? Nine days. Nine, nine plus one. Nine plus one. Plus cooling off yeah, days, yes. right? And that's not much time at all. So well, I actually, um, having been through twice, I'm not too sure whether anything longer would be um, uh, physically, yeah. you know, sustainable. Uh, and and uh, the thing is that maybe, okay, if you look at it that way, the nine days were intense, but probably just uh, enough. You know, um, anything more is going to be um, going to be physically very draining for everybody, and also financially. Sometimes it may not be viable. But of course, you know, if we look at things the other way, if we have say if we have had fifty days to campaign, they wouldn't have to be. It wouldn't have to be so intense right from the start. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how you look at it, But I think nine days probably is just about nice. Maybe. Two weeks would have been ideal, but not any shorter or not any longer than two weeks. I don't know. I think um, that might be true for SMC because mm-hmm. uh, Mountbatten is probably manageable. Mm. But I, uh, looking at the GRC, like mm. for Marine Parade where I was living in, mm. oh, nine days is really nothing. Unless, nothing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're a party contesting who already had a big presence on the ground before the election, mm. of course, uh, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, but if you're new, especially, for example, if the constituency boundary has mm. just redrawn or something it's very you won't even get a voter recognition in the nine days uh, mm. let alone be able to persuade them of uh, to vote for you mm. yeah one one other uh, concerns of course is that anything longer than nine days it's almost impossible to because some of our volunteers are almost doing full-time yeah. mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. took leave you know they for that nine to ten days even some even before that you know took leave and um help us with the campaign um, full time but anything longer is quite impossible as well mm-hmm. and unfortunately we don't have any uh, real full timers helping us doing yeah, running I mean, the campaign that raises the point that it almost looks like we're going through the election almost like a, as a token exercise what yeah. you're saying is that it's, I mean from the mm. uh, from the PAP's point of view it's fine to be for the opposition to be running a token campaign but mm. for a country I don't think that's a good idea mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it comes back to the question we keep asking, right? What is fair and what is reflective of the will of the people? That in, in, in order to have an informed vote, I think people need to know about the different parties, the different right. manifestos, mm-hmm. different options. If between elections period, you had freedom of the media and assembly mm-hmm. and the right for political parties to get their voices heard and covered fairly in the media, you know, get their, uh, put up posters and get their, all this information out there and there wasn't all this gerrymandering and outright rigging, 
then then okay then maybe a short election period you know because people are already informed about their choice but in singapore you know and correct me if i'm wrong but i think a fair generalization is you're only really allowed to campaign and be a politician and act like a political party during the campaign period whereas outside of that the laws totally circumscribe political activity and so nine days is just not enough yes yes okay. I, i i agree I, i agree on that but what what i'm trying to say is that um anything longer in terms of the um, um the sustainability the, um, at this point of time when i look mm. at uh, a lot of the opposition parties the candidates um probably any longer you know we wouldn't be able to sustain yeah. financially you know in terms of the effort again, the that's time. not your fault right yeah. that's the system's yes. fault yeah. because you know in in other countries the opposition mm. for example is funded by the government there are grants you know that in order to make sure the election is fair and that mm. other voices get out there you know in in singapore we don't have any of that right the mm. leader of the opposition is in most westminster mm. systems of an office funded by the government not in singapore mm. you know so it's a system which is so stacked against you so yes i i, I totally understand what you're saying mm. it's unsustainable but it should be sustainable yes. because in the normal course of politics it's really important we have all these diverse mm. views coming up um So okay, so what what we basically have is uh, what nine plus one, you know, period unsustainable s- sprint. Um, but what what is it like on a day to day basis? Is so, it really uh, intense? <laughs> Quite intense. So say for example, a typical day you know during that nine days would be like uh, we usually started off the day at about six six thirty. We want we want to catch the people going to the market or going to work. So. We usually will go from MRT station, um, or well, not in the not in the station, but at the entrance or the exit. Um, some prominent bus stops. We know that there will be a lot of people catching uh, buses to work. You know, to get the op- opportunity to 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 engage the you know the the working crowd, the the, the residents there. You know, giving out some flyers and while waiting for the buses, some some you know we took the opportunity to to talk to some of the residents. Um, and this will carry on, and and after you know after the um, uh, catching the the office uh, or other people going uh, to work, we usually will adjourn to like uh, coffee shops or markets or hawker center to catch the um, the next group of people who who are there for breakfast or to do um, to uh, buy uh, buy fish or you know or, or meat in the market, and after that we take a break, okay. Um, And in the evening we start again. So in the evening usually the because we we'll expect that most people are on their way home or already home from work. That's where we do the door to door. And weekends a bit different. Weekends usually we start the whole day doing door to door. One one of the other challenges, of course, uh, would be that um, HDB it's relatively straightforward. We we really go from floor to floor, door to door, but. The private estates will be a lot more challenging. In particular, the condominiums. Um, we in two thousand fifteen, we had a lot of difficulty getting any uh, permission to enter any of the private condominium to even to um, arrange uh, some kind of town hall meeting with the residents. 
it wasn't allowed. Um, a lot of the condos have this bylaw that says that no political activities can be uh, can be carried out within within the the property. So there was no no way that we could engage the residents there other than literally standing outside the condo waiting for them to walk out or or, or come come back home. That's the only way that we could engage them face to face. Whereas if you look at the PAP candidates. Um, some of them were invited to some of the condos uh, um, as grassroots advisor, um, talking to to the residents, you know, about issues that um, the residents may be facing in in the constituency. So, um, so that's where we also realize how how unfair the the playing field is. Yeah, there are some residents that we just couldn't reach out to. And what about rallies? Um, is it a lot of logistical work to organize and who well the, the the main bar of work of course uh, once we have secured a date um, well the, the venue of the rallies were already fixed more or less fixed okay we were told you know uh, of the the venue um, the, the next thing that we, we needed to look at was of course to coordinate all the different dates for different rallies for the same party at in um, different constituencies. So once the coordination is done and the dates have, has, have been fixed, then we, need, we needed to go um, and apply for the, the rally date. Um, once we secure that, then all the work starts. Um, the, like I, I mentioned earlier, the contractor would have been on standby uh, for us to set up the stage um, and whatever that's necessary, including the sound system. Um, what was stressful for us mainly was to come up with the list of the um, speakers in time because if we couldn't um, have the speakers' names submitted in time to the to the authority, they couldn't speak. Oh. So so as 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 um, as as an election agent, you know the stress is always on that because it, it always there were a lot of changes and always very last minute. You know there's always this fear that we didn't. I couldn't uh, submit in time, and then you know, then the rally wouldn't couldn't actually take place. And again, mm. is the logic for that like it must the speakers must be Singaporeans, must be Singaporeans, uh, must be members of your party, either or? members of the party or a Singaporeans with no party affiliation. Right. Yeah. How did you find media coverage of your rallies? Well, um, of course. Um, the um like the, we we look at social media they definitely will be there even the, even the mainstream media and and a lot of times during this period of time uh um a lot of journalists get in touch with us and uh and follow us on walkabouts and uh and our outreach activities so actually we we didn't have to reach out to anyone there were people who actually were assigned to every single constituency, even for mainstream media to, co- to, to do, do the coverage. But at the end of the day, how much of this is uh, you know, seen on newspaper or on TV? You know, it, it really depends on how, how interesting or your, your candidate is or how, how newsworthy uh, that constituency is. So you didn't feel that there was any bias in reporting? Um, Biasness is always there, but it's something that right from the start is we already expected that. So it's not something that that we were too concerned about then. Then you know at that point of time, yeah. So actually, in actual fact, we were engaging more uh, on social media, 
um, online citizen, etc., who who actually provided uh, a fairer coverage. Well, I think about yeah. what you're saying. You you you're saying, you you know, the media is biased. Yes, yeah. that's a fact. You know, that's how bad things are in Singapore, mm. where the media is openly biased. Mm. And we're like, yeah, well, we knew that, so... Like, it's not even noteworthy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you wouldn't even need to point it out I, 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 to I, I, say, I need you know, to stress, yes. expected, I need to stress. prepared, so it's fine. <laughs> I need to stress that the, the journalists uh, from mainstream media who actually were attached to us, they were all very nice, very polite. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can even feel the, that they, 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 they actually feel for us, you know. But, but mm-hmm. I, I choose to believe that they were they were faced with a lot of restrictions and constraints. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah not necessarily that they were they themselves were biased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's well established. And it's institutional, yes, right? Yes. It's not the individual yeah. reporter. Yeah. yeah. And um, for those of you who are members of New Narrative or 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 not, if if uh, you go to our Facebook page or our Twitter feed, you can see an article um, uh, that that covers freedom of expression in Singapore. And embedded in that article is uh, a YouTube video of a seminar that was held at the Singapore University of Technology and Design a few years ago, in which members of the mainstream media, Channel News Asia, Straits Times and so on, openly admitted that they had to be biased, uh, that they did produce uh, propaganda, that they were biased against uh, opposition politicians, and the system demanded it of them. So it's not as if you know, people are denying that the opposition, uh, sorry, the, the, that the media is, is uh, you know, uh, isn't biased against the opposition. Um, even the members of the media themselves admit it. And um, I think, this, you know, the sad thing mm. is that it's just, uh, you know, we don't fight back against this more strongly and vigorously, but we've become so resigned to it on top of everything else that goes on. It's also worth noting, I think, at this point that, uh, and you know, this surprises a lot of people around the world, but I mentioned this, that exit polling and opinion polling are illegal in Singapore during the campaign period. Um, so when you were running, was there any way to know the mood on the ground? Or was this purely like gut feel? Gut feel. How, yeah. there, there's, there was absolutely no way to, you know, to be able to accurately you know, uh, uh, estimate or, 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 or feel uh, the level of support that we could get. But, but, you know, based on gut feel and also the kind of support that we had on the ground when we were meeting the residents there. But then again, you know, the strange thing is that um, 2015 compared to 2011, there were a lot more uh, ground support. People on the ground were like telling us, come on, go on, you know, we'll support you, you know, good job, things like that. But as we can see from, it, it didn't translate to results, votes. Mm. Um, are, were people being hypocrites or they changed their mind, you know, they were not sure, they were sitting on the fence and decided to vote for the, the, the incumbent, you know, uh, last minute. I don't know. Well, I mean, if I can suggest, it's, it's several things, right? The people who are more likely to come up to you, mm. it's sort of self-selection bias. That It's your supporters who are, you know, people who yeah. weren't going to vote for you aren't going to come up to you mm. and say good job. But also, I think as, you know, and I've mentioned this in other talks and, and papers, that there is a strong element of um, fear of being punished following the election. Mm. 
Um, and this ties into the lack of information about exit polling because um, through the mechanism of town councils, right, the government can threaten citizens that their public services will be affected afterwards. Right? Mm. Lee Kuan Yew was actually quite explicit about this. You know, he said, uh, you vote in opposition, your public services will be affected because they're incompetent, he says. Mm. Uh, but as we've seen in Aljunit, it's mm. a lot more than that. Right? Um, and well, actually, it's more than just town councils. Yeah. I think in the past, uh, Goshok Tong has specifically mentioned that precincts which don't vote for them may be last in the queue for upgrading. Yes. Mm. So that yes. goes down to polling district level uh, results, which I guess we'll probably talk about later when we get to counting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, is another thing that's just normalized mm. in Singapore and that we joke about, right? Like, mm. we say, oh, you know, if you go to Potong Pasir, you'll see that it's all, like, yeah. not so developed and, like, you know, go residents of Potong Pasir because they're so garang. You know, but mm. so there's that, that kind of, like, kind of comedic <laughs> overturns to how we have, have gotten used to talking so, about so all of this. But it's funny that, that, you know, you're discriminated yeah. against because you voted for opposition. Um, but I think uh, to, to finish the point I was making, right, um, this is why when people talk about the 70% of the last election, I disagree that 70% reflects the actual will of the people. We have an election designed to maximize outcomes for the PAP, uh, and you know we've been going through all the different ways in which uh, they make life so difficult for the opposition, and uh, disincentivize voting for a non-PAP candidate. And then you have the fear and the knowledge that you're going to be punished. So ultimately, the only reason why you would have confidence of voting for a non-PAP candidate is if you knew that the PAP was going to lose, right? And the only way you know the PAP is going to lose is if there is polling, you know? So if the PAP doesn't form the next government, then you know you're not going to be public punished. Then you feel more confident about voting for an opposition, right? And polling gives you an idea. But in that lack of information, there's fear, there's uncertainty, there's doubt. And anyway, I think uh, opposition parties all agreed the PAP was going to win the, the election you know, in 2015, mm. uh, for example, regardless. So if that's the case, why would you vote for anyone else knowing that the PAP is going to win and knowing that if you did vote for someone else, you run the risk of getting punished? You see, and that's, that's why I think it's, we can't... Um, you know, going back to the, the big point we keep making, we can't say elections reflect the will of the people because the elections clearly are designed to maximize positive outcomes for the PAP. You know, it's like a prisoner's dilemma, basically, right? Except it's a countrywide thing. Everyone, you need 50% of the country or, or more because it's first past the post, right? It's not even, you know, it's, it's a, the PAP only need about, what, 22, 25% of the vote to win a majority of seats anyway. So you actually need a lot of Singaporeans uh, you need to trust all, all these other Singaporeans not to um, confess, right? That's the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, and, and then collectively, then you know you won't get punished. But, you know, how are you going to do that on the national level without polling data? You can't. Oh, but but that's, 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 that's a very self-defeating viewpoint though, isn't it? But that's how the system's designed, right? You know, that's why we, you know, any other country, you'd have polls, right? Especially in a rich, developed mm. country. Polling is ridiculously easy in Singapore. Why is it illegal? There's no reason to make it illegal, right? Because the more information you give voters, the better, the more informed choice they can make, right? So if you deprive them of information that allows fear and uncertainty and doubt and allows the government mm. to control mm. 
uh, the you know the narratives, mm-hmm. especially through a media which you know openly admits it does propaganda. So you know that's the that's the situation we have. Well, I don't know if this you know sounds kind of far fetched or idealistic, but then see that that only works if you if polling data does show that there's fifty percent or more people willing to um, vote out the PEP. But so in the absence of that, what what are the options available, right? Like what what are the what will enable people to vote according to their um, principles, vote according to their will, like who they really do want in power in their constituency, even if that doesn't mean that this party will form government. And I think, I do think Potong Pasir is quite a good case study in that, in that people kind of owned that, right? There was a certain pride that we have, we want this um, MP, even if that means we won't get lift upgrades, even if that means, and I think that we, we do have to um, have access to those other narratives and other ways of feeling part of Singapore, feeling part of your neighborhood, feeling part of something, and that, that it is something you can be proud of ideologically that you have stood by this, right? That you haven't pandered to a certain practical gain in the short term and instead uh, holding out for um, because of something that you believe in. And I think we, we need to celebrate that spirit where it does emerge so that it is encouraged, right? Yeah. That, that we can that we can do that, that we can make these sacrifices because because ultimately, how do we respect a government that will punish us for not yeah. voting for, for them? Yeah. And that, that if that is why we're voting for them, then we're held hostage to them. And I think on some level, we do have to encourage that the ability and, and acknowledge the ability of, of citizens to to reject this narrative, yes. right? To, to, yeah. to opt out of it entirely and say, no, I will not be held hostage. Yes. Not just that I need the security of more than 50% of my fellow citizens voting for this so that I will not be punished in these ways. is a much more, but, it seems a much more, I don't know, I, arduous I, thing mm, to, to yeah, have to expect The bigger issue is assuming that, I mean, why would you assume or normal view people will be punished, right? Because... Yes, at polling district level, there's a possibility that, that the sentiments of that pressing are, are known. But at individual level, there's uh, really no way that any individual could be punished for his vote. Yes, yeah, it's no, true. We're talking about it at a precinct yeah. level. But, yeah. Okay, but I mean, but, well, okay. But, precinct but, level is there's, there's always this irrational fear that, you know, um, the government will know who exactly you voted for. Yeah, but Even, I mean, like, growing up, you know, that's what I heard from from some of the senior folks, you know, mm-hmm. telling you that, or oh, uh, especially if you uh, work in the civil service, you know, or if your kids are a teacher, you better know who to vote for. If not, that will affect the future of your kid, your yourself, you know. And 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 the thing is that who started this? Like how how but they no, even sometimes even arrive I, at sometimes this? I think that those are excuses for people who actually support the PAP, but. The one that made it because it's not uh, <laughs> but, but, but it's not fashionable to yeah, say appropriate so they say oh I do it because I'm afraid. <laughs> let me tell you but this: this, okay, so this I, fear is real, okay, because it happened to my one of my relatives. I'm not gonna mention who, and and then you realize that until now, um, if we don't, uh, we are not able to convince the Singaporeans, uh, residents, uh, the residents, uh, the the voters that um, the voting process is. Uh, is secret. It's it's about the, the process itself of voting and counting of mm-hmm. votes. I believe it's fair. Right. Okay, and if people are not convinced of that, and then 
we can't alleviate that 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 fear, then it's going to be a very challenging task for us, uh, for for the oppositions. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you know, the where this fear arose from is one thing, but what we can say for sure is that the PAP has never come out to discourage the fear, right? By making an unequivocal declaration that, hey, your vote is secret or it's okay to vote for the opposition, you know, because we're all loyal Singaporeans in this together who want the best for our country. You know, they don't say those things. Yeah, or that it is okay for contractors to build Mm. stages for opposition or for printers to, Exactly, because this myth, this fear works for them. To their, to their advantage right now. So there's no reason why they will come forward and, and want to debunk that, that myth you know, about, about voting the, the serial numbers. You know. Because ultimately what it will take is a citizenry that, that rejects this narrative altogether, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. that, that um, is, becomes intolerant of the vindictiveness and pettiness and, and control that this government has and exerts over them and says no to it. Like, I think that's... So instead of like going about 70%, we should talk about, look, 30% of Singaporeans reject this. And it's, it's inspirational, right? That in spite of all these, this fear and these barriers and exactly. this discrimination, mm-hmm. 30% of Singaporeans still say no. And, you know, that is, uh, that is something to draw strength from. Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. think that there is a lot of like opposition voters, especially in the older generation, right, who are quite proud of it in the way that they talk about it. Like, mm. like you know, we've always voted opposition because, mm. you know, we will not tolerate the, this, this repression of our freedoms and, and this hypocrisy of this government. And I think that to celebrate that, that courage and that spirit, which, which means accepting certain material costs, right, whatever they may be, or, or even if they're imagined costs because of the fear. But I think we, we have to call people into that space, right? Into that political consciousness. Well, like I, said, I mean, the only way really around that fear is, like I said, I, that's why I'm always advocating for greater participation to begin with. Yeah. But of course, it is chicken and egg. Uh, for those people who are afraid of getting involved, they will not see it in, in the first place. But I think um, just the fact that almost every constituency is, gonna, is contested these days Mm. will automatically bring more people inside uh, into the political, into the election process mm. just by the fact that voting is compulsory and you know, yeah. they will have to vote. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, participation is one thing, but I think like political education happens in so many different mm. ways. Like I think people listening to this podcast is a way of their political consciousness yeah. growing if there are certain things they learn, hopefully. <laughs> but there's a, like so, so many efforts, I think, that are required outside of just election mm-hmm. period or participation in the yeah. election mm-hmm. standalone, but just in, in raising political consciousness of citizens, right, so that they can make these informed decisions at the polls. Well, true. I mean, well, okay, the irony is that, that actually for the average voter, the ordinary voter, I think, really doesn't have to worry about facing recriminations because the fact that 30% have voted against PAP consistently and have never really faced any consequences means actually for average voter is not concerned. Although we must also acknowledge that that may not be true for the elites or the opinion makers, such as the academics and writers that we've talked about earlier who have faced career uh, discrimination because of their, not even political activity, but for even the academic writings and uh, uh, questioning, the, uh, questioning government policy. 
or daring to question po uh, government policy. So it's, I, 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 there's a, I guess there's a, there's a paradox here. Like at the same time, I'm arguing the average person really doesn't have to care about, really doesn't have to worry about uh, being penalized. And yet, ironically, the leaders uh, might be. I don't know whether you, you can accept that both can be true at the same time. After 2015, so uh, we, during the post-mortem, we could actually uh, sit down and analyze every every polling district, what's the vote count, you know, wh why the difference. And then we realized that, um, of course, uh, one of the uh, polling district was Tanjong Ru, and uh, we all know that there's a, quite a high percentage of new citizens from India there. So naturally, the vote uh, um, for opposition was one of the lowest there. Okay, I mean, understandably, new, being new citizens, right? And interestingly, um, similar to 2011, the, the precincts that were that we thought would garner most votes because they were poor, they were uh, underprivileged, actually, we realized that the, um, the vote shares or rather the percentage of um, uh, that we got from them was one of the lowest. But that makes perfect sense, yes, right? Because we realize that because I don't yeah. know a single like family in a rental flat mm -hmm. neighborhood in mm -hmm. the rental flat neighborhoods mm -hmm. I've worked in that hasn't been to see the MP multiple times yes. and gotten so many yeah. things done yes. because they went to see the MP and they celebrate their MPs in so well, many not, ways. Not, not because, necessarily because because, because, because you've talked to some some of them, you know that they have their unhappiness, um, you know this. this uh, dissatisfaction, you know, and they have their all their grouses about the, the government. But at the end of the day, I, I believe that they're afraid of losing whatever handouts that are that they are already receiving. That's what they're afraid of losing, you know, because like you say, they are dependent on this. So at the end of the day they would rather not a lot of them would rather not rock the boat. They know that status quo not good, but we are still, you know, surviving, you know. So a lot of the People from the middle lower class, I feel, have this mentality. And in actual fact, in 2011, um, areas uh, where people stay in big houses, we get a slightly higher vote share compared to the HDB dwellers. And I can only really say that probably back then, in 2011, these were also the people who knew that they had less to lose, even if. Um, the the um, Mountbatten SMC was won by an opposition um, candidate. That's that's my, that's our analysis. Yeah. So you have the campaign period, then you have cooling off day, mm -hmm. right? Which I think we all agree, as structured in Singapore, is really unfair because you have continued coverage of the PAP by an openly biased mainstream media who are exempted from those rules, whereas um, the avenues which opposition parties and MPs can get their, uh, or sorry, opposition candidates rather, can get their voices out, like social media, are yeah. severely constrained. And I think we also have seen that uh, people who post on social media on cooling off day in, you know, whatever vague way in support of an opposition candidate has been investigated and warned, whereas people who do that on behalf of um, a PAP candidate escape uh, such investigations and warnings and sanction. Um, but 
you know, from from a, a candidate's point of view, what do you guys do on cooling off day? You can't campaign, so it's just is it just pre- preparing? So 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 uh, most of us thought that you know that 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 was a good time for actually for the candidate to take a take a break before the actual polling but we also took the opportunity because it was a day that we couldn't do um, campaigning at all so it was also a good time for us to gather all the volunteers uh, to do a final briefing for polling agents and also counting agents so um, so we chose to look at look at things on the bright side at least we have an a day extra, or rather not a day extra, but and a day that we cannot do anything else but just focus on briefing the volunteers on what to do on the actual um, polling day. Right. Okay, and then coming to uh, polling day itself, mm. right, um, I think one controversial issue has been that ballots have serial numbers. So, Theoretically, your vote can be traced, even though this has never happened and mm. the government has never, you know, broken open the, the ballot boxes and, and uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, you know, and looked at old ballot papers and started matching them up. Mm. Um, but this contributes to the continued culture of fear that we have in Singapore. Um, and again, the, the, as I mentioned earlier, the PAP has never come out and, and just stated quite plainly and boldly, your vote is, is secret. Um, it's, but I think there are also other ways that during the, the polling um, experience, the voting experience, um, there is a lot of, um, there's still a lot of unfairness towards how uh, a non-PAP candidate um, and their agents uh, experience it. Mm. And from my own experience as a, a polling agent, right, I volunteered for the STP at the last election because they ran in my constituency. Um, the, the PAP polling agent had a voter list and was so much more well prepared. Uh, but of course, the voter list is extremely expensive to obtain and print and distribute to all polling agents. So I had nothing, I just had a piece of paper so the voter shows up and their name is read out from the voter register by the election official right quite clearly and loudly and the pap uh, polling agent looks for their name in the voter list and scratches it off right but i've i've got nothing right i've got no way to verify that they are who they say they are and and it feels like there's there's also a a subtle form of um I don't know what's the right word. Intimidation seems like too powerful a word for a voter to show up and the last thing they see before they go vote is someone dressed in white scratching their name off a list. You know, whereas someone dressed in whatever the alternative other parties' colours are just kind of looks helpless. So I think yeah. there, there's an element there of uh, unfair resources uh, that also contributes to a certain environment of of uh, of fear there's this intimidation that i whether intentionally or unintentionally um when a voter appears uh, arrives at the um voting uh polling and uh, polling station and you're given a slip of course before you can vote the presiding officer would have read out your name and ic number loud and clear i think that itself the action itself is rather intimidating, especially for pe- first-time voter or people who are not really sure of who to vote for. 
that action might actually you know um, make them decide um, on who to vote for mm-hmm. yeah so so I think some education also have to be on um, assuring people that uh, voters that you know um, this is done there's a reason why all this you know there's a, uh, why there's zero number why names are being called out um, but unfortunately like you say earlier on um, the government is not going to come forward and, and you know uh, explain clearly why it has to things have to be done in a certain manner mm. yeah. well actually I mean elections department will will routinely make the statements of vote secret and uh, explain why there's zero number but so I mean the, the government does say it no but as far as I can recall they did mention that voting your voting is secret mm. but they did not elaborate okay. on the serial number part right. it was the last time it was actually I think Workers Party and if I remember correctly SDP as well mm. that came up with a lot of uh, posts on to, to to explain to people how the process right. takes place I mean some of it is, the serial numbers actually is inherited from the, from the UK mm. practice uh, and in the UK they have actually had cases after election where there's been challenges and then they've had to open up ballot boxes and uh, invalidate certain votes but that's because the UK system is uh, much more sloppy they allow postal ballots mm-hmm. which are easy to uh, to get uh, which are easy, very subject to fraud and they also allow people to vote without showing any identity uh, identification because they don't have a uh, national identity card so that system inherently is prone to more prone to malpractice so that might justify why they have it. Although, of course, many other countries which also don't have national ID systems don't have serial numbers. Uh, so, but you know, but in the Singapore context, actually, the risk of malpractice is zero. Frankly, zero because we don't allow postal ballots uh, to begin with, and we are so anal about showing IC for everything mm. that mm-hmm. I can't imagine a possibility of a voter coming in and deliberately showing a fake ID to get in to get a vote. Mm. So given that, and I think, and you're right, there has never been a scrutiny of the ballot in Singapore ever since elections were first held. Mm. So given all that, actually, I don't really think the serial numbers have any real purpose. I don't think they really add to the security of the election at all. So we, we should actually just dispense with it. I mean, again, it doesn't serve a purpose and it just creates a lot of unnecessary cynicism, a lot of unnecessary fear about process. So I would actually say they should just get rid of it. It's interesting you mentioned the UK because, of course, uh, as someone who lived in the UK, mm. I had the right to vote there right. as a Commonwealth citizen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the system as designed was designed to err towards the, you know, reflecting the will of the people yes. mm. and trying to make sure that everyone had a fair chance to vote yes mm. right and that's why there are you know it's a bit loose at the margins because they'd rather err on the side of this person mm. gets to vote and maybe okay there's a there's a one or two bad ballots but everyone who who has the right to yep. vote got to vote yes um, rather than disenfranchising True. any any one person yeah but that's because yeah. by the Singapore voting is compulsory that's one major factor mm, yeah uh, in UK many other countries is not so yeah. yeah in those cases I agree there may be a lot of marginal people who didn't register on time you know so you want to give you want to allow them to register to the very last minute and yeah if they forgot rural areas yeah. there are areas with massive True. poverty where people find it difficult to you know take mm-hmm. time off to yeah. go deal with this, there are areas where people aren't linked into the national system, can't register because 
you know, even in this modern day, right, they don't have a phone or a computer or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. So there's all these problems in a, in a big yeah. country. Uh, but none of those problems. Yeah, exactly. Singapore. So say in Singapore, that's why we say we, we. I mean, as a few of us have stated, the processes on election day itself actually are uh, very fair and quite well run. Actually, the elections are quite well run in Singapore compared yeah. to many other places. Very efficient. Yeah. Uh, so it's and it's so efficient that actually we should be dispensing with things as fewer numbers because yeah. there's sufficient controls on the ballot, printing of ballot paper. There's a security mark which is required, and actually even. In terms of ballot stuffing, by right, the candidates are actually allowed to place a seal on the boxes. Yes. After, yes, but yes, I've never yes. seen any candidate do that. Well, no, what happened? What happened is that at at, at each um, this uh, polling station, right. okay, mm-hmm. is one of the actually one of the volunteers from each side that sign over the sticker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is brought to the um, uh, this um, counting center. Right. Mm-hmm. And after all the counting has been done, the paper, the slips, uh, the voting slips will be placed back into the boxes, sealed again, and either the candidate or one of the member from the opposition party has to countersign. It's, it's allowed to see, place a seal. Are they allowed to sign or do they have to place a seal? I thought it's signed. If okay. if I remember correctly, okay. they signed. All right. But yeah, I mean, I, well, either way. Yeah. So and then all these ballot boxes will, uh, will be kept for like a couple of months. I can't remember exactly. Six months. Six, six months. months. Yeah. yeah. And both um, members are both candidates from both uh, both parties will be invited to witness the, uh, the, the destruction yeah. of the, the, the ballot boxes. Correct. Yep. And if I can say, as a polling agent the last election, I found the election officials on the ground to be very well trained and very fair because they had to deal with a lot of people coming in, asking questions, mm. and you know, you had older people, you had new citizens mm. who didn't know how things worked. Sometimes they would ask leading questions and, uh, you know, for example, like, oh, which one's the governing party, right? <laughs> and the election official would reply every time, okay, this party is the People's Action Party. This party is the Singapore Democratic Party, you know? And then the, the, the voter would be like, um, no, no, which one's the government party? And like, no, 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 we, 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 we can only say this is the People's Action Party and this is the Singapore Democrat. You know, so that, mm-hmm. and so they knew the law and they, were, they, they actually did their jobs yes. very well. And I was, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely yeah. right. The day itself, the voting itself, you know. Um, and, and that's why I think we, to come back to broad point, we say it's, the voting is mm-hmm. free, but it's not fair because it's everything that happens before, before that one day. That yes. Even before nomination day, that the <laughs> playing field was already <laughs> tilted. And it's also that you don't need foul play when there are so many legitimate ways <laughs> for you to control the game, well, right? Yeah, it's no, only yeah. legitimate yes. legal ways to be unfair. You yes. don't need to resort they, to they any don't need to resort to this at illegal all. Yes. or like corrupt, you know, in, in terms of legality, mm. like ways to do it. Mm. Yep. And, yes. I, and I think one of the other things that has to change about the political culture is also this this kind of like depersonalization of candidates, right? That that it is um, you know, this this PAP narrative that we're we're a team, right? And and individual candidates positions on things, individual candidates um, work, the, the advocacy they've done on different things, what they stand for, and all of that is irrelevant because we're just a team. And then I think that is part of the effective depoliticization of the electorate, right? Because it's so much harder to get excited about a monolithic entity and to see room for diversity, see room for representation that somebody in parliament could reflect you when you're not even focused on the person at all. I mean, what does it matter if I get a minority candidate elected or a woman elected 
if it is not even about what they can represent, but I'm voting for this one monolithic mm-hmm. brand, right? And that and that it, it really doesn't matter who the individual candidate is. And I and I think we, we need to start like part of political education is starting to like pay more attention to and publishing things like who are the MPs who've asked questions in Parliament? Mm-hmm. How many times have they asked questions mm-hmm. in Parliament? And about what issues? What if they stood up for? What if they'd you know done work on right? Because we have to start caring about candidates' positions as 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 distinct from each other, not just as this kind of monolithic entity. So you know that there, there are like um, um, critiques of you know how how few women we have in parliament, right? So yeah. we only have um, um, women make up only twenty three percent of parliament and only thirteen point five percent of the cabinet. And um, but you know to me it's always like. Um, kind of an incomplete critique to say we need more women in parliament, we need more minority representation, because all of that, again, only matters if candidates have power and candidates can be recognized as representing. So we're in this kind of climate where you're told you cannot represent a particular group's interests, that you're just an extension of, of white, right, of this, like, one unit, unit then it's very difficult for... Um, representation to be meaningful representation, then it just becomes tokenistic. Right? So what difference would it make even if there were more um, um, minority candidates in parliament or more um, women in parliament? What, what difference would it make if you're not allowed to have an identity, if you're not allowed to represent issues? So I think those are you know, um, things to pay attention to. And, and I think even in terms of like reportage and stuff like that, they're, they're, they're continue to remain like kind of sexist overtones to how female candidates are treated in the media. Right? So those are all other things that we do have to look at around the culture of encouraging women and minority candidates and candidates of different class backgrounds and things like that to step up. Like we still don't have anyone in parliament uh, who's you know from ITE and very, very few who are from Poly. So there, there isn't really a culture that encourages that kind of inclusivity of representation because it is built on this very... Um, specific and misleading notion of meritocracy and competence mm-hmm. rather than on diversity and representation. True. In fact, yeah, to broad, go beyond your point about uh, minority candidates not wanting to be seen as representing their community, I don't know about these days, are, are there any PAP women's candidates or even opposition women's candidates who are willing to be identified as uh, feminist candidates or women's candidates? No. <laughs> I think they, they definitely... Um, see themselves sometimes as representing mm-hmm. women, but I, I have never heard a PAP female candidate say she's a feminist, right? Or mm-hmm. any, any female candidate in, in parliament say that they're a feminist, and that's another thing that concerns me, that we can't just be focused on more women in parliament, but we need feminists in parliament, yeah. right? Yeah, and I, you know, that point about media coverage is really important, because I think people take a lot of their cues from that, and how you know the the way we, uh, you know female candidates are covered it's incredibly sexist and uh, yeah so there's just a lot of focus and, on how they look and, and, and you know and then when they say something that is just the the, the kind of impulse to mock them call them yeah. aunties just you know all those those yeah. th- sorts mm-hmm. of things but even how minority candidates are covered in yeah. the press right that that like it it really struck me when like Murali Pillay was standing for the by-election in 2016 that they focused so much on his appeal to Chinese voters in his constituency, right? That he had nicknamed himself Amu and he can speak Hokkien and Mandarin. Like, why do you have to have a Chinese-inflected name as a minority candidate to pass? 
right? So, mm. so your, your palatability as an Indian candidate is, is measured by how much you can associate yourself with Chineseness, right? And how distant you can position yourself as being from mm. your own culture and community. And that's deeply unfortunate. And if you see all the, all the Indian um, politicians that we have in parliament or you know, any high-ranking position at all, don't represent the the majority of the Indian community, which is yeah. a lower caste Tamil yeah. Hindu community, right? So that's they're not they're all um, you know from from upper caste backgrounds yeah. or from um, Salonese communities or non-Tamil communities generally. So yeah. upper class and and upper caste and typically married to non-Indian people, yeah. right? So there is a particular kind of minority candidate who's desirable. Yes. One who is as non-minority as possible, right? <laughs> in all of these ways. Yeah, very cynicized, as you mentioned, can speak like some Chinese or Chinese dialect, or, you know, or I remember Taman doing uh, Chinese karaoke. Yep, you know? yep. All that sort of thing, right? Why does that any of that matter? But it's, you know, I don't know if this is going to be controversial, uh, but when I think of the PAP historically, right, we, we you know, us in Singapore, we, we kind of, I think, look at UMNO as this Malay nationalist party, but we don't realize the PAP over time evolved to become a Chinese nationalist party, and that's who they are today. Right, the, and it's, and it's yeah. strange, because even though they started out in the 1970s mm-hmm. as positioning themselves as in opposition to the Chinese educated, Chinese chauvinist type of... Um, Politicians. Yeah, in the 50s and 60s, definitely, yes. Mm. And I, you know, Devon Nair, for example, famously broke with his left-wing colleagues. And one reason why he did that was because he looked at the Barisan and he felt that they would not be able to break away from this very intensely Chinese communal appeal, right? right? Even if the leaders of the Barisan were, you know, uh, avowed um, Malayan nationalists and... Um, believed in a multi-ethnic society, he looked at the party base and he was like, you know, you guys are never going to get away from this. And he stuck with Lee Kuan Yew, which of course he later regretted very, very much, but he stuck with Lee Kuan Yew because he said, this guy is multi-ethnic and the only hope for Singapore is multi-ethnicity, you know, and and transcending of race. And of course became very badly disappointed because Lee Kuan Yew then veered into right, quite but overt even, racism. And even more America. recently, they've yeah. accused like Workers' Party MPs of being Chinese yes. chauvinists, right? Yes. But yes. like Lee Kuan Yew in 1989 said that the Chinese majority in Singapore has to be maintained, right? Or there will yeah. be a shift oh, in the yeah, economic yeah, yeah. performance. But he also said that if there wasn't the Chinese majority maintained, there would be a shift in the economic performance and the political backdrop mm. which makes the economic performance possible, which means that there's this explicit intent to keep Parliament, majority Chinese. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think in 1966 he already told that story of oh, a Chinese and Indian Malay taken to hospital, and the Chinese recovers quickly, and the Indian recovers slowly, and the Malay recovers really slowly because it's in their blood. You know, some nonsense <laughs> yeah. like that. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's not even an obscure story. It's in his book of you know collected speeches or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think it's in Josie's book about about Lee Kuan Yew. But you know, he's never. He never denied it after a certain point. And, and we're, I think we're really um, living in this very Chinese nationalist society, Chinese supremacist society even, that has been created. And 
that then to bring it back to the topic reflects on the kind of candidates that are put forward and the kind of people who are permitted or minorities yeah. who are permitted to become and, part of and I mean, I've already made this point but I just want to say it again because it really upsets me right yeah. is that minority candidates it's not just that they're told not to represent minority groups interests right but rather that it is particularly insulting mm. that they are used to keep that their explicit role seems to be to keep those communities in check yes. to tell them yes. to calm down to tell them to back off to tell them to tolerate to tell them to not agitate or not be unhappy about anything right so um, and and i think that is particularly insulting it's not just that you can't represent these these minority interests but you have to police them make sure that they behave and keep them in check Okay, and that brings us to the end of a really long, I think this is our longest episode okay. ever. There's just so much. We could have talked, I think, for another couple of hours. A big thank you to our guests, uh, Koki, Shithang, and Tingwei, for giving us so much of your time. And uh, for our listeners out there, I know we've said a lot in this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, and if there are any of you out there who um, disagree with the things we've said, who've had a different experience you know, don't label it fake news, but instead what we invite you to do is come on the show and debate with us and have a nice conversation in a civilized, mutually respectful, democratic way. So this is an open invitation. Any PAP candidates or indeed candidates for other political parties who you know, disagree or just want to talk about their experience and uh, their views and their vision for Singapore, um, consider this an invitation to come on New Narrative's political agenda and have a nice chat about, uh, about Singapore, about the country that we all love and we live in. So be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. And if you enjoy this podcast, uh, do give us a, a good review at uh, iTunes or whatever podcast uh, software you're using. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. <laughs>